If you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35 um, this morning. Now, the way that this sermon is going to go, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up for, for structure so that we can, we can track together. Because I, f- I feel like I need to spend the first five minutes giving us... Um, taking us into the context of this passage, which means digging into some Old Testament history. And I want you to track with me because I want, it's important for us to see the picture of what's going on. And then after that, we're gonna start to unpack it uh, and examine our own lives and our own hearts and, and, and the need that we have and the provision that God has given us for redemption. So, um, and there's a story coming up that I just, I, I can't, it's amazing. Um, so, let me give a little bit of context, and I'm just gonna quote James Boyce um, talking about Deuteronomy. By the way, there's a handout on your chair here. This has to be the weirdest handout I've ever put on a chair before. Um, the text from Deuteronomy that's here is very strange in some ways, and then it says, Dear Donald, on the back, and you'll learn what that's about in our response time. Um, but uh, this text from Deuteronomy factors in pretty significantly to the text that we're gonna read from Joshua today. So here's what Boyce uh, wrote. He said, it's agreed among most students of the Old Testament that the heart of the Old Testament law is found in the book of Deuteronomy and that the heart of Deuteronomy is the list of blessings and curses found in Deuteronomy 27 through 30, many of which you find in the handout that I've given you. Deuteronomy presupposes the unconditional covenant of God with Abraham by which the Jews were chosen as God's people, but then it moves on from this fixed point to show that blessings or lack of blessing depend upon obedience. And this is unfolded in these middle chapters. On the one hand, there's a list of curses for those who disobey God's law. And on the other hand, there's a list of blessings for those who adhere to it. And it's an interesting feature of this listing of curses and blessings that it was not only preached to the Jewish people by Moses before the beginning of their conquest of Canaan, but that it was also repeated in a special ceremonial way once they were in the land, which is what we're going to talk about today when this happens. So once they were in uh, in the new land, Moses had never been to Canaan, but he knew something about it, either by report or by revelation. And so he said that when the people of Israel came into the land, They were to read these blessings and curses at a special assembly on the sides of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so today's text is the story of Joshua doing this, of taking the people of Israel and gathering them to observe what Moses had told them to do. When you get into the land, split the people up, which you can read on that little handout. Half the tribes go to this mountain, Mount Gerizim, the other half go to Mount Ebal, and rehearse and reread this list of the blessings and the curses. And so I want to read the text from Joshua where he does this, Joshua 8, 30 to 35, and then we'll go from there. Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal as an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. And he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. And on it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests, who were the Levites. 
Half the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. So, this is Joshua doing this. Now we're in Old Testament history. Track with me because I want us to see what's happening. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's important. They're in the middle of a conquest, right? They were over on the, what would that be? The eastern banks of the Jordan and the Lord parted the waters of the Jordan and they passed through and they took Jericho. A couple weeks back, we read about them also, the battle of Ai where they first tried to do this on their own and failed and then God gave them this, gave them victory when they turned to him but they haven't finished the conquest. They haven't taken the land yet. They're just really getting started. They've only fought two battles now at this point, but here they stop what they're doing. When everything in me would be wanting to say, let's go, let's go, let's take the hill, let's take the hill, the Lord says, stop and remember the words that I have given you to live by. Remember the call that I have given you. They go to this place, this valley between these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which one commentator talked about. This, this place would have been just a breathtakingly beautiful place to go, that on the sides of these mountains it was this stone sort of ledging that made this natural kind of amphitheater where the people would be sort of staggered on these levels in this lush green place and, and sort of like bleachers that would have given this acoustical quality to it where you could shout from one side to the other and hear. Okay, so half of the people are on one side, half of the people are on the other side, and they're shouting the blessings and the cursings from the mountain as the Levitical priests are passing through with the law of God. This reminder that when they obey God, they'll be blessed. When they disobey God, they'll be cursed. If you noticed in our text too, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal. Now, Mount Gerizim was the mountain where they shouted the blessings. And Mount Ebal was the mountain where they shouted the curses. And it's on Mount Ebal that Joshua built this altar. When they're doing this, and they're passing through, and they're hearing, obey and you'll be blessed, disobey and you'll be cursed, it's not like it's a prediction. It's their living reality. They've already, they already know this. They've already lived this and experienced this. When they've obeyed the Lord's instruction, which he's giving through Joshua, the Lord's hand has been on them and he's blessed them. When they've rebelled against God and disobeyed, the Lord's hand has been upon them in a different way and he's disciplined them and he's punished them. And he's brought this curse upon them. We saw this a couple weeks ago with Achan when the Lord said, when you go in and you take this city, don't take any of the gold or silver or plunder as your own. Leave it. It's, it's set aside for destruction. And Achan stole some. He wanted it and he took it. And God brought judgment upon him. So they're remembering not a story that awaits them, but, but one that they're already in, that they're called to obey the Lord. And when they do, God is with them. And when they disobey, God's hand is against them. This is the story they're in. Okay, so do you have the scene? Between the mountains and the valley, curses, blessings being shouted. All right, I'm a hiker. One of my passions in life is hiking. I love going places where 
you, you can stand in places and say, I don't know if anybody's been here in the last 30 years. They're hard to find, but they're, they're, they exist, right? These places you can go. If you go to Radnor Lake, there's a trail. How many of you have been to Radnor? There's a trail at Radnor. It's almost impossible to lose the trail at Radnor, right? I mean, it's mulched, and it's, you know, and there's signs that tell you it's this, it's this way. But if you go places where, where it's harder to mark a trail, like a place where, where it might be a, a, a you know, a, a bald of a mountain that's just stone, it's hard to know exactly where the trail goes. And what hikers will do is they'll leave these little things called carns, which are these little piles of rock. And when you see a carn, what you know is it's that way. I'm supposed to go that way. They're leaving a trail. When we're reading through the book of Joshua, one of the things we found in this book, right, in this text today, was that Joshua instructs, or that, that Joshua builds a pile of stone on Mount Ebal. And if we've been paying attention, we should notice, you know, that's not the first time that the people of Israel have built a pile of stones. In fact, kind of throughout their wilderness wanderings and now in the promised land, the whole terrain is sort of peppered with these little piles of stone for various reasons that they have built and left behind. Ebenezer's, carns, things that make a person approach it and say, this isn't natural. Somebody, somebody put this here and there must be a reason or a story behind it. And when you look at the stories that are being told by the piles of stone left by the people of God as they're making their way through Canaan, it's really kind of an amazing story. But I want you to think about your own life in a figurative way, that there are episodes of your life where you are leaving evidence of great victory or you're leaving evidence of terrible defeat, of failure, of being saved just barely from certain situations. The ones that Israel has left, they, they left the Ebenezer at Gilgal. We remember this from, from Joshua 4. This is when they crossed over the Jordan. God held back the waters. They crossed over on dry land and a representative from each of the tribes came and got a stone and they built this stack of stones. And the reason they did it was so that when the children would see it and they would ask, what is this stack of stones? They would say, this is when God brought us in. He brought us into the land. That's a good stack of stones, right? That's a great carn. That's a great story. But then the next one, from Joshua 7, is after Achan sins, and he's put to death. He's buried, and they pile stones up over where he's buried. And the text says, and those stones are here to this day. It's a cue for us. That's another place where their story, they're looking, and they're seeing What's this pile of stones about? And what that pile of stones is about is this reminder of Israel's potential for unfaithfulness to the Lord and the consequences that come, the dire consequences that come from rejecting him and rebelling against him, that God brought judgment on those people. The third one that we have is the pile of stones over another grave, over the king of Ai. And this is a mixed bag, this story, right? Because the people of Israel went into battle to take Ai without consulting the Lord and they got their tails whipped. God said, you, you need me to lead you. And when they said, then lead us, he led, he led them in and they had victory and they captured the city and they won. 
And the king of Ai was put to death and there was this pile of stones mounded up over him, another carn that's marking the story of the people of Israel. What are yours? What are yours? What are the things in your rear view that are telling the story of your victories and your defeats, the complicated things in your life, like that one over the king of Ai? That's a complicated story for them to tell. Well, this is the king of the city that defeated us until we turned to the Lord and then he gave us the victory. We have these complicated stories in our lives. You do, I do. These carns that pepper the path that we've walked that prompt people to say, what's up with that? What, what is going on there? And here we find now in today, today's text, the fourth that we come to so far. There's eight of them or seven of them in the book of Joshua, all told. But there's this altar that he builds on Mount Ebal. We're, today's Halloween. Reformation Sunday, Halloween, same day today. And I wanna ask you this question, thinking about Carnes, thinking about Ebenezer's that stand in your past. What haunts you? What haunts you? I could ask it this way. What's the worst thing you've ever done? But maybe that's not the question. Maybe the question for you is, what's the most impossible situation that you're in? The, the most broken facet of your life that you look at and you just think, I can't seem to shake that. You're not alone. We have these things. For some of us, the, the, the reality is, is that they're still yet to happen to us, by us. But I want to introduce you to a man named Donald, Donald Curry. In 1963, he was a graduate student at Chapel Hill, and he was studying climate patterns. And he was wanting to study climate patterns over a span of a long period of time, 2,000 years. So dating back to pretty much the time of Christ. And uh, he got a grant uh, by the National Science Foundation, which to me sounds made up, um, but uh, the National Science Foundation. And he got a grant and he bought some equipment with the grant. And some of the equipment that he bought was, was one of the ways that you can look back into weather patterns from hundreds and hundreds of years ago is, is, is to do what? It's to study um, trees and to study core samples of the rings in trees. And so he got this grant money and he bought this really expensive set of equipment to take these core samples from these really, really old trees so that he could study, you know, if a ring is, is, is thick and spread out, that was a wet season. And, and, and if it's tight and close together and dark in color, that's a dry season. And so he, he goes to this place, uh, the Snake Range on Wheeler Peak in Nevada, about 11,000 feet, there is this grove of bristlecone pine. And what's unique about this grove of bristlecone pine is that many of those trees are known to be 3,000 years old or older. And so he goes up with the permission of the Forest Service to take some core samples of some of these trees. And he comes to one tree which has been named by the Forest Service Prometheus. Prometheus was the Greek god who brought down fire and gave it to man. Prometheus. 
And he says, ah, this one looks old. So he starts to bore into the side of Prometheus. And that tree is hard as a rock. One of the features of these bristlecone pines is that they're growing out of stone. And there's stone in them that's grown up kind of in them as they've grown. And he's in there and he's got that drill and he's boring in and it's bogging down and he's trying and he's trying and he's trying and it breaks. The bit breaks off in the tree. And what's he going to do? He's stuck. And so... He goes and finds the Forest Service people and he says, I can't continue my research without that bit and the information from the core sample and I, I can't get it out. Is there, is there anything you can do to help me? And the Forest Service says, 1964, yeah, we'll help you. We'll just cut it down. So they go up. They say, well, we'll help you. And the Forest Service brings their chainsaws and their two-man things, and they cut Prometheus down. I have a picture of it. It's the, where is it? There. That's the Prometheus stump. All right. Remember, this is thinking about these Ebenezers in our past that are just, how are we going to shake them? They're going to haunt us for the rest of our lives. Well, he gets a slab sample of this, a cross section of this tree, back to the lab, and he starts to count. And he gets to 1,000, gets to 2,000. We're at the time of Christ, and he's not even halfway done. And he keeps counting, he gets to 3,000, 3,500, 4,000 years old. Now, the oldest known living tree at that time was 4,600 years old. He gets to 4,500 years. He keeps going. And he gets to 4,900 years old. This tree. Almost 5,000 years old. 4,900 years old. 300 years older than the oldest known tree. Perspective. America is not yet 300 years old. Or are we? 200 and something, right? Yes, we're not there yet. That's just the difference between these two. Oops. <laughs> he has now in his study a sample of the oldest tree ever known. People find out about it. They're livid. Do you know why? See, here's the thing. You think you know why. I thought I knew why. And we're thinking, they're mad because he cut down the oldest known living tree. It's more than that. See, what happened was, on August 6, 1964, Donald Curry discovered and then killed the oldest known living individual organism in the universe. That's what he did. 
I mean, there are no animals that were older than this, no bacteria that was known to be older than this, no other trees. This was the oldest known living thing in the world. And not just in the world, but known in the universe. And he had a slab of its dead, lifeless core sitting there on his desk. And he became known as the man who killed Prometheus, the oldest known living organism in the universe. How do you live that down? How do you live that down? There's a story, the story goes that in the 80s, he, one of the things he had to do to, to just, you know, gain any kind of footing or credibility again in life is he kind of had to change the direction of his profession. He had to stop doing this. He, he's trying to create distance. He was a scientist, and so he started studying instead like salt formations in lakes. That was his thing, I guess, that he went, ended up doing. In the 80s, he's giving a television interview to somebody about salt formations in some lake, and at some point, the lady in the interview says, now, are you, are you the Donald Curry that cut down the world's oldest living tree? And the story is that when she asked this, as an old man, he ran away. Think about this. It, 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 what moves me about this story is it's not just the mistake. And it's not just the unintended consequences that, that followed, but it's, but it's how he came to be known by this now. This is who he is. He's the guy who did this thing. Can you imagine the mail that he got? over the course of his life. Can you imagine the words that were spoken over his heart? Words have so much power. The way he would have been villainized. He died in 2004, by the way. Can you imagine the conclusions that were drawn about his character for doing this? When I think about this, I think about my own life. I have Prometheus stumps things that I've done that have ended up having much more devastating results than, than I, I thought. You know, the Forest Service said there's lots of old trees up there. That won't, cutting down one won't matter. Just happened to be the oldest one. But think about your life. You have these things too, these Ebenezers, these Prometheus stumps, some of which are undiscovered at this point that no one knows about, but these things that are in our lives that speak to define who we are, that make us believe that my identity is somehow connected to this thing that I did, that this is now who I am, that this is what follows me now for the rest of my days, that I'm the person who did this horrible, horrible thing. It's the most important thing you can know about me. It's what I'm famous for. And we're going through life and we're passing through Ebal and Gerizim with the promise of blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience ringing in our ears and in our hearts we know that there's a ring of truth to this. That when we behave like fools and we rebel and we reject God and we go against what we know to be true, that we know that's not going to go well. Some of us have these joyful seasons of knowing that the Lord has carried us. We know about blessing, but also we have these distant and sometimes recent memories of living out the painful consequences of foolish choices, relationships that are warped because for years we've bent them in order to not deal with them in the way that we should. 
We have lost trust from panicked moments when we just couldn't bring ourselves to tell truth. We have veiled contempt for people that we've claimed our whole lives to love, but everybody knows that behind our words is just contempt. We've got this brokenness, these things that just sort of pepper the path that we've walked. What hope do we have then for these Prometheus stumps that we're leaving behind? Karma says this, do more good than bad. But I believe that an honest human heart knows that that's bad math, right? How many trees does Donald Curry have to save to make up for the one that he killed and to be right in the eyes of the world? What hope do we have? When the carns behind us are like those that Israel has been leaving, some pointing to victory, some pointing to defeat, some pointing to sorrow, some pointing to complex moments of kind of victory, but kind of struggle too, and we're just buried in this. What hope do we have? And the hope is this, is that Joshua builds an altar on Mount Ebal, and what that tells us is what I want to leave us with. Mount Gerizim was the Mount of Blessing. That's not the place where the altar was built. The altar was built on Mount Ebal. What does that mean for us? It means that this was a sinner's altar. It means that this altar was built so that those who are broken and identified by their sin can have hope of redemption and forgiveness. How do we know this? Because what does God tell Joshua to do there on that altar? He says, on this altar, write out the law. God gave his law He said, do this, obey me in these ways. But then what did he do while he was doing that? Simultaneous. He also gave them a sacrificial system. James Boyce says it beautifully. He said, it was as if God were thundering from Sinai, thou shalt not, but then immediately added, but I know you will. So here is the way to escape condemnation. And he gives them the sacrificial system. On this mountain, where the people are shouting curses for the people's undeniable past and certain future disobedience, stands this, this altar, which tells the people, though the wages of sin is death, God in his mercy will accept a substitute for you. On the mountain of your curses, God will accept the death of a substitute. And in those days, the substitute was an animal and it was meant to be something that would make the people say, it is innocent, but it is not human and therefore it is not perfect. And so they would keep doing it over and over, offering these sacrifices in a perpetual way. Think about the blood Think about the amount of blood that was spilled for the sins of the people of God as he received their sacrifices and they kept bringing them and kept bringing them and kept bringing them because they kept cutting down Prometheus. But in Christ, we have a perfect sacrifice, one who is not only innocent, 
taking on our guilt, but is also one of us. Fully God, fully man. Dying in our place as our substitute. It's important at this altar, the Lord says, don't craft any of these stones. Build this altar out of stones as you find them. This reminder to the people that they're not bringing anything to their own atonement. That it's this animal that God made on the altar of these stones that God shaped. And he is receiving it and they are finding their mercy, mercy, mercy. There's mercy. On the mountain of your disobedience, there is an altar where you find redemption. And there is one who has been sacrificed for you, has taken the wage of your sin. And if your faith is in him, if your faith is in Christ, there is mercy. There is mercy. You have a new identity. Regardless of what you've done, when your faith is in Christ, you're clean. You're cleansed of your sin. The altar on the mountain of curses tells you there's redemption and that redemption is perfected in Christ regardless of which Prometheus lies fallen at your feet. There is redemption in him. Pray with me. Lord, it's hot in here. And Father, that is just one of the things that reminds me of how complicated my own heart is, how distracted I am. And so, Father, when we read a text like today's where we have people who are on a mission to take the promised land, you stop them and you bring them to this place that is out of the way for what they're trying to do And you remind them who they are, whose they are, what you've called them to be, and the redemption that you have supplied, knowing that we have in our lives a mountain of curses, a mountain of disobedience, and the effects and the consequences. Lord, I ask that you would give us an honesty of heart to recognize um, the monuments to failure that we have uh, in our rear view, the the things that we have done that we maybe haven't really confronted honestly. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would bring those things to mind, that you would give us uh, the courage of heart to to interact with with those before you honestly and that you would, um, Father, convince us, convince our hearts, our stubborn hearts of the redemption that we find in Christ. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these reminders that you are faithful to all generations. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.